Chapter 26 Javin's Paradox Rebound Effect by Blake Alcott, retired ecological economist. In the heyday of the Industrial Revolution, as Britain worried about running out of coal, William Stanley Javins pondered two simultaneous phenomena. First, required coal input per unit of smelted iron or work done by steam engines had long been falling. And second, total coal consumption had been rising. Likewise, demand for labor input had been rising alongside rising labor productivity. From these observations, he derived the general claim that technological change, which increases the efficiency with which a resource is used, increases rather than decreases the rate of consumption of that resource. This claim was later exemplified by electric lightning, where a hundredfold decrease in the amount of electricity needed for a lumen spawned a thousandfold increase in the amount of electricity used for lumens to light buildings and streets. Jevons called this a paradox, because for psychological reasons we expect a per unit decrease in an input-output ratio to cause a decrease in the overall consumption of this input. The input could, of course, also be water, phosphorus, arable soil or work hours, as well as energy. First, a few definitions. Suppose the average kettle becomes 10% more energy efficient at boiling water. Suppose also that the number of kettles in the amount of water boiled per kettle doesn't change. Then the amount of energy used to boil water would fall by 10%. This 10% of the total amount of energy previously used to boil water would be an absolute amount of saved energy, known by the technical term engineering savings. But this amount is theoretical only. In reality, less than this gets saved because, aided by lower prices both of outputs and of the energy inputs, the energy momentarily saved gets used by consumers to do other things. Unless suppliers lower supply, thus counteracting the price falls, latent consumer demand snaps up this temporarily fellow lying energy. This new demand is called rebound consumption. Javins held that rebound consumption is higher than engineering savings. That is, even more energy gets consumed than if efficiency were to stay the same. Had steam engines efficiency remained at James Watt's level around the year 1800, we would be consuming much less coal. A second possible outcome is rebound equals 100% of engineering savings. This happens when the technological efficiency increases do not affect input consumption, which simply continues its rising trend. A third outcome would be when some of the fellow lying energy remains permanently undemanded, rebound then being between 1% and 99%. As rebound nears 100%, policies to induce increased efficiency become cost ineffective. At 100%, they are simply ineffective. At over 100%, Javin's paradox. They backfire and they are counterproductive. Is it then a reasonable degrowth strategy to encourage or legislate greater efficiency? Not if latent demand and population growth pounds on all the resources temporarily freed up by the efficiency increases, and certainly not if Javins is right. 
historians, anthropologists and psychologists usually find it completely plausible that we do not leave any theoretically conservable energy lying in the ground unused. More consumers, new discoveries of energy, new uses for it and more efficient technology in mining it, all these affect the level of overall combustion. But efficiency increases also contribute. They expand society's production possibilities, amounting to a rise in society's total purchasing power. They encourage discovery of new uses for energy, and they aid population increase by increasing food yield and by providing healthy, heated buildings. There is evidence that worldwide, over perhaps 20 decades, output per unit of input has gone up. One hour of work, one joule of fossil fuel, one hectare of farmland produces more goods and services than before. We can measure this as an increase in the ratio of the sum of the world's gross domestic product GDP. To physically measured inputs like worked hours, energy, fresh water or metals like copper, iron or rare earths. But has this increase in this efficiency ratio been accompanied globally by a decrease in amounts of energy used, people working or minerals mined? No. In fact, the big empirical picture shows that rebounds are at least 100%. Interestingly, for labor hours, no historian or economist claims anything but that rebound is greater than percent. Higher productivity has meant economic growth and more jobs. Those who believe that rebound is less than 100% do not, of course, deny that efficiency increases to date have not saved a drop of oil. However, they claim counterfactually that without them even more oil would have been burned. This points to the fact that today's rebound discussion is basically theoretical. To be sure, we can use microeconomic methods to measure so-called direct rebound. If a given consumer drives a more fuel-efficient car, thereby saving money previously spent on fuel, some of this income gets spent on driving more. The output-driven kilometers increases, so rebound is greater than 0%. Further, indirect rebounds are however also certain, namely a so-called income effect enabling this consumer to use his or her safe purchasing power to buy a gadget, clothes or a plane ticket. These two types of rebound give us the environmentally relevant number we want, total rebound. Indirect rebounds, however, are notoriously difficult to measure and there is moreover no methodology to derive indirect and total rebound from the direct rebounds for the various economic sectors, however precisely these may have been measured. Studies of rebound in single countries or groups of countries rather than at world level face a further problem. If they count only the amount of energy consumed within these countries, Ignoring the amounts embodied in the country's net imports such as cars or computers, the result is distorted. A final difficulty in judging average rebound for all countries is that studies of total rebound in poorer societies yield higher estimates, often backfire, than studies of Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development countries, perhaps because consumers there are less satiated. Given these problems of method, it is no wonder that even after 30 years of microeconomic study, total rebound estimates vary by more than an order of magnitude. Thus, to say the least, 
It is only with high uncertainty that one can claim real savings through technological efficiency and it is tempting to turn to the alternative strategy of living more sufficiently, working, producing and consuming less. Here too, though, there is rebound. If I unilaterally decide to buy less energy, my evaporated demand lowers energy's price by an increment in the worldwide energy market. This in turn enables the world's billions of marginal consumers who wish to work as much as usual and consume more output to demand what I no longer demand. This might contribute to equitable consumption, but not to energy conservation. Unless the entire world population starts living more sufficiently, which is immoral since billions live in involuntary poverty, other people take up the slack in demand, left by those who voluntarily do without some energy. Rebound is relevant to degrowth because what must degrow down to sustainable size is not utility, happiness or even necessarily GDP, but rather the amount of biophysical throughput caused by humans. The total amount of natural resources consumed plus the emissions and waste caused by this consumption. And there is in fact a well-known policy option that reduces throughput directly and with certainty. Legal caps on the amount of a resource mined and consumed. Communities have, for instance, for centuries kept what can legally be pumped from aquifers and the Kyoto process is now trying to cap air emissions. As in Javits' time, instead of degrowing resource consumption by means of physically defined caps, many people bank on the uncertain strategy of more efficient use of the resource. But what happens to the energy that could thus be saved? It is saved if some of us live with lower throughput, perhaps working less through work sharing, won't the rest of humanity demand the freed resources which after all continue to be supplied at a profit? Input consumption rebounds and the tail, moreover, cannot wag the dog. If society first caps its resource consumption, people will automatically live more efficiently and sufficiently, and perhaps not less happily. The hope for our inner engineer is that technological peer unit efficiency gains will somehow lower overall levels of depletion and pollution. And this is what gives birth to the environmental strategy of increased efficiency. The environment, however, doesn't care about ratios such as our human efficiency or, which comes to the same thing, the economy's dematerialization. Only real amounts matter, regardless of how much utility we squeeze from our budgeted amounts of resources. If there's something to Jevons' claim that humans will ecologically expand through a combination of population increase and greater material affluence, we should move away from technical or purely personal changes to political solutions based on the insight that natural resources are collectively owned commons.